The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. Everybody, to another episode of Positive Talk Radio. My name is Kevin McDonald. I'm your host today, and we've got a great guest for you today. He is he's an awesome man. He's been working at uh, this uh, particular issue for a while now, and uh, he's um, one of the he's he's like one of the few voices out in the wilderness that's talking about something that affects us. And I, I'm not even sure that we are aware, generally speaking, how much it actually affects us, our lives, our husbands or wives, our children and our friends and families. I, I just don't think that we are aware of that. But Joshua is and he's going to talk about all of it. He's an author of three books. He is a former addict himself. He is now coaching people and helping people understand the uh, pervasiveness of what we're going to talk about and um, and is, is working to really shine a light on it. He's in the last four years, he's done close to 350 podcasts. He's out there a lot talking to people about what he does and and what and how we can get out from under this this on this deal that's going on so with that joshua shea how are you sir i am doing fantastic thank you for inviting me to your show today kevin oh it's it this is i quite honestly i have been looking for a long time for someone to talk about this i haven't found anyone and it's it's just people are just not out there as, as i think that they should be because this is a and what we're what we're going to talk about right off the top is we're going to talk about porn addiction. Um, we're going to and and the pervasiveness of it from all different angles, from what it's like if you are addicted, what it's like if you are a loved one of an addicted person, what it's like if you are a somebody that is in the theater or acting themselves in these films and what what horrible devastating consequences it can have we're going to talk about all of it uh that's okay with you isn't it if you have 12 hours i guess we can talk about all that <laughs> well i can tell you right now because you're the only only gentleman that i've found that that is good at this i'd love to have you back absolutely and absolutely and I always, I always tell people that you know it's funny you talk about there aren't many people talking about this and i get a lot of people ask me well why don't you do a podcast why don't you do a podcast and i say you know that's too much work i have to keep entertaining and growing the same audience and making it bigger and what i can do is just go from show to show and i've got like six hours of good material so i can just streamline it for you but if i had my own show i'd have to come up with new things all the time so really when you talk about people not doing this much i want 
in my obituary to say that I was the Johnny Appleseed of porn addiction. I just walk, go somewhere. I tell people about it. I drop a few seeds. I move on. I keep going. Because at this point, that's all I feel like I can really do to make a difference. Because so many people still want to bury their head in the sand because, oh my goodness, nobody looks at pornography. Or only really disturbed people and perverts look at pornography. And I can't even talk about naked people doing naked things. So, no. <laughs> and it's like, that's, that's going to hurt us. Because that was kind of the attitude. If you look back at the early 80s of the Just Say No Nancy Reagan era. Right. When, we, when people were starting to get really hooked on opiates and opioids. We decided as a culture that those people were from the bad part of town, the other side of the tracks. They weren't like us. They were less than. And we ignored it, despite the fact that, you know, rappers were singing about Vicodin back then, despite the fact you can watch Dragnet and Hawaii Five-0 and they're talking about heroin. We knew these problems were there. We ignored them. And that's the exact same thing that's happening right now with pornography addiction. You cannot have an unhealthy sexual society and have a healthy sexual society. They just It just doesn't line up. And if we don't start talking about this, if we don't start dealing with this, we're going to have a very scary, unhealthy sexual society come 15, 20 years from now. Times have changed so much. When I was a kid... Um, in the way back in the '60s, um, th this information and this this whole industry didn't even really exist. Uh, you had to go to a CD porno theater and and that smelled bad and with uh, like twelve other men that would be you know not that I've ever been to one by the way, but uh, of, course <laughs> of course not. And uh, but now it's everywhere. It's and and kids are being influenced by it and 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 in some cases controlled by it but i gotta ask you what separates somebody who for a lark um decides to get on the the internet and and to look at at, at a site and somebody who's truly addicted to porn what is that like yeah well you know and i should actually you know say up front here kevin that i don't view myself as being anti-pornography i view myself as being pro healthy sexual education and the reality is it's completely normal to wonder what naked people look like. It's completely normal to want to see depictions of sexuality, especially when you're at an age that your body's changing and it's kind of, you know, weird things are happening and suddenly you're interested in other people and, and sexuality and, and that kind of stuff. It's also ridiculous to be anti-porn because if you look at the people who tried, mostly very conservative religious types or very radical feminists back in the 60s and 70s, none of their arguments worked. They didn't do one iota to help anything. So you're not going to get rid of pornography. It's it's in cave paintings. It's on the uh, artifacts you find in an Egyptian exhibit at a museum. You know, the, the Kama Sutra, which was the still is probably the greatest sex manual ever invented in very conservative India, is hundreds of years old. So we're not going to get rid, rid of depictions of sexuality. We've always wanted to see them. It's always been a curious thing. There's nothing wrong with that. It's completely natural. I don't care what the pilgrims told their kids. It's completely natural. And what we have to realize, though, is that the way that pornography has changed over the last three decades or so, 
especially the last 15 years with high speed internet and social media, that it's now being delivered at a rate and at an extreme content level that it actually is causing problems out there and that we can measure it. And as an addiction, it's really like any other addiction. You know, addiction is addiction is addiction. If I'm a food addict, the addiction isn't in my stomach. You know, if I'm a cocaine addict, the addiction's not in my nose. And if I'm a porn addict, the addiction isn't between my legs. All addiction takes place in the brain. That's where the problem is. And somebody who, you know, is curious and looks once in a while, that's fine. You know, if it's not, you know, disturbing their lives, if it's not against whatever moral code they have, if it's not creating a less, uh, hospitable environment for their life. You know, I, I was also an alcoholic and I know, I mean, I've got a wife who can go to, we can go out to eat a restaurant. She can have one glass of wine and that's it for the week. You know, if I went to a restaurant in my drinking days, I didn't waste money on food because that would only take place of, of the alcohol. You know, it, it's an excessive thing. And it's about, you know, using something to an excessive degree to the point where it is either starting to, or you recognize it can cause negative effects in your life in many different ways, but you are still so compulsive with it that you can't stop. And that includes making promises to yourself about your behavior and not being able to keep them. The interesting thing about this is it does have wide ranging implications for if you're, if you're an alcoholic and you, and you, drink at home and you're by yourself and and stuff you don't necessarily impact a lot of folks around you if you're if you're like you live alone it can be right. but if you're married right. and you have kids well you're probably drinking because you're lonely at that point yeah probably or, or for some other reason but but porn addiction and and the use of pornography by the way we we talked before the show about you know that if you're not aware of this, ladies and gentlemen, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joshua, but yep. porn is the biggest moneymaker on the Internet today. Am I correct in that? Well, you know, with any statistics, you can manipulate them any way you want. The reality is nobody knows exactly how much the pornography industry is worth because most of these companies are not based in the United States or in any countries where you have to actually do financial filings. Uh, a lot of them are more shadow companies. Um, and the other thing is you have to then define pornography. Would you say that, you know, what Playboy does is pornography? Some people say it is. Some people say it isn't. Some people say any R-rated movie is pornography. Some people say unless intercourse is depicted, it's not pornography. So, you know, it's, it, it's one of these things about labels that uh, one of my favorite quotes was from Justice Potter when there was the uh, obscenity uh, trial years ago. Um, and a lot of people confuse this as a quote for pornography because they were trying to figure out the lines. And he said, you know, I can't define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. Exactly. <laughs> I've I've heard that one uh, often and a lot. Well, let's talk about first of all, let's talk about you, because you are a recovering uh, addict from both of those things, from both alcoholism that you went and you uh, went into treatment for, as well as porn addiction. Uh, which one, which was first and which was the most pervasive, do you think? Well, what was interesting was that I didn't know truly that I was a porn addict when I went to rehab for alcoholism. 
I basically had a bunch of people in my life say this has to stop because I had recently lost my job, a job where I owned one third of the company, um, among other things that I was doing. But uh, people could see that I was a drunk. You know, you can't hide that very well. You slur, you stumble, you smell like it. It's pretty easy to hide the fact you're a porn addict. Um so people people weren't looking to see if I was a porn addict and and I wasn't even really looking. I thought that my porn use was just a poor decision that I made when I drank because I became a porn addict at 12, I became an alcoholic at 14. Those two things pretty much lived in tandem after that. I knew I looked at porn differently than other people and I knew that from a young age, but I thought it was alcoholism and I went to rehab. I agreed to go to rehab. I thought I could do the whole fake it till you make it thing. I'd go there for 28 days, just like Sandra Bullock did in the movies. And, and I, my first week, every, it was in one ear and out the other and whatever. And then I don't know what happened. Maybe it was the dry air. I don't know. Uh, but it was, uh, it was all of a sudden like a light bulb moment where it was like, oh my God, they're talking about me here. They are absolutely talking about me. You know, somebody who thinks he's too clever for his own good. Somebody who thinks statistics and science don't apply to them. And, you know, somebody who, who you know, is, is escaping a lot of things or is trying to manage a lot of things and justifies using. So it, it clicked for me. And then it started to become a very worthwhile experience. After about five or six weeks there, my case manager um, you know, told me that I think you ha may have some issues around pornography. Um, and I'd like you to meet somebody I know who is off campus here. And so I went and met this guy. I was in Southern California at the time, and he was a uh, certified sex addiction therapist. And it only took about 45 minutes for him to finally crack the code in my head that taught me addiction is truly a disease. Even if it's a disease at the very beginning of our own making, it's still a disease. And that I had uh, porn addiction was a disease. Porn addiction was a real thing. And that it predated my alcoholism. And it probably, in a lot of ways, contributed more negatively to my life than the alcoholism did. Once I discovered that, uh, I saw him probably another half dozen times before I left. I spent about 10 weeks at that rehab. Um, when I came home, I sat down with my therapist, who I had just started seeing before I left, and said, there's a porn problem here. And we began to explore it. And then about nine months later, I went to rehab in Texas for porn and sex addiction. And it was great because I hadn't used porn in nearly a year at that point. So I didn't have to go through a lot of the elementary kind of detox stuff. Um, I was able to get jump right into the hard work. And that hard work was learning that addictions are really just a symptom of a bigger problem. When it comes to pornography, that bigger problem is almost always unresolved trauma from some kind of childhood abuse. You know, that, that ugly, that, that is an ugly thing that we, that many people in our country and around the world have had to deal with, which is growing up in a sexual abusive situation. I didn't say sexual abusive. I oh. just said abusive. Oh, well then that opens up the even a bigger can of worms. 99, 99.3% of men who are porn or sex addicts, according to Dr. Patrick Carnes, who is kind of the godfather of study in this area, have some kind of unresolved trauma from childhood abuse. 
just over 80, just over 70%, excuse me, have suffered some kind of physical abuse. Just over 80% have suffered some kind of sexual abuse. Over 95% have suffered some kind of mental or emotional abuse. You know, if you are, if you're one of my clients and he, he allows me to tell this story, you know, he had some of the most misogynistic thoughts and ultimately we figured out, and he was a huge porn addict. We figured out, it took a while, but we figured out it all went back to one day when he was in school, fifth, sixth grade, his mother, a single mom, sent him to school in pants that were too big and he wasn't wearing underwear, he says. So he gets to school and there's, I think he said he was fifth, sixth grade. And we all know how groups of 12 and 13 year old girls are just the nicest people on earth when they get together. <laughs> and they started harassing him and bullying him and making fun of the fact that they could see his butt in the back of his pants. And you know, calling him names, making him feel bad about it. What he learned that day was that his mother didn't care about him. She got him these pants. She just gave them to him. Even though his father abandoned them, he developed issues with his mom because she thought he didn't, he thought she didn't care because of these, this pants incident. And then he developed this whole issue with pretty girls or talking to girls, nice girls. Um, he, he couldn't do it because of that day. And that was just a one day of hardcore bullying, but he made some real decisions based on that day. That's the kind of mental and emotional abuse that I'm talking about. And it took us a few months to get through it and to figure out exactly where it was. Like it takes most people a while to truly get to their the, the root of their trauma. Um, but once you get there, it becomes so crystal clear. This is how you've been living your life. You made some very... Uh, uneven decisions, you reach some uh, wrong conclusions, and you developed maladaptive practices to dealing with life. And most people who end up 13 or 14 years old getting addicted to porn, they're still using it at 25. They're not using it for the same reasons. What they've learned is that the pornography made them feel good when this one horrible trauma happened when they were young. And so it must work for everything. And that's what ultimately happens is that people repress, people forget, people forget the kind of you know abuse that happened and they bury it with the trauma. So it just becomes a coping mechanism that we use. Bad day at work, oh, I'll go look at pornography. You know, oh, you know, not happy today, I'll go look at pornography. Addictions generally are just that cure-all and that panacea for not feeling good in the moment. But if you go back, they are rooted in in trauma almost always. And that and that's really why all of us and we've talked about this quite a bit on the show is that all of us can use a therapist at one point or a coach or somebody to help us through because there are a lot of times we can't see it. And and many times we have forgotten and I'm sure that you can validate this that many times the abuse that we suffered when we were kids we've buried so deeply in our psyche that we don't want to bring them back up but it manifests itself in other ways is that true absolutely and I mean I don't I don't mind sharing because I have you know other places excuse me that my abuse was both sexual abuse and uh, emotional mental abuse at the hands of a babysitter that I went to between the ages of about two and six, two and seven. And um, at the time, I didn't recognize it was sexual abuse. 
um, it was actually kind of compelling to me in a, in a way because my parents were very uh, conservative Catholic school teachers and I felt very safe with them. And, you know, my mom would let me watch a Rambo movie on HBO in the 1980s, but God forbid you see a butt crack or a breast or anything like that on HBO. Change the channel, change the channel, change the channel. So I go to this, I go to this babysitter's house and it's just way more relaxed and chill with the sex stuff. Now, I didn't realize that it was not just inappropriate. It did move into abusive in, in many, many instances. And I both watched and had abuse happen to me. Then I look at how I dated girls when I was a teenager. I look at that first time where me and a bunch of male friends, somebody had a videotape of porn and popped it in and everybody was laughing and I felt crazy about it. And I look at, you know, the whole fight or flight thing. Any opportunity I ever had to do things like play spin the bottle or go skinny dipping, any of that normal childhood, explore your sexuality kind of stuff, I ran the other direction from. It absolutely pervades your life. You know, your life is completely interconnected. And that's one of the things that I had noticed going through uh, recovery and with my own clients now is that we try to compartmentalize so much of our life and just manage little chunks at a time and treat them as independent silos of each other. But the reality is your life, is, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. You can try to keep the little pieces apart, but you don't get the full picture of your life until you put the pieces together. And yes, there may be one piece here and one piece over here that are nine pieces apart, but you can draw many different paths to get to those two pieces together. It is all interconnected. And that's what people need to do is to put those pieces of their lives together and then take a step back and recognize, oh, this is how I ended up the way I did. This is how I got to where I am today. You know, it's, it's not nearly as hard to, to get rid of an addiction as it is to create the narrative of how you became the person you are. I always tell clients, we're going to be doing 20 to 25% addiction work to talk about your triggers, to get you to slow down, to, to get you to manage this. But ultimately, we have to deal with the trauma stuff. The addiction, it's, the addiction is a bandage you put on a very deep cut. Bandages don't do anything for you health-wise. They just hide the problem. If you're going to deal with the problem, you have to unwrap the bandage and deal with that big gash in your arm. And once that heals, you'll have a scar. You're going to have a scar. We can't go back in time and change your trauma. Unresolved trauma just becomes resolved. It doesn't you know, automatically not have happened. But once you understand that that trauma it has a big play in the map and in the road of how you became the person you are today. It's a lot easier to manage all of this and to recognize what's important, what's not, and how many stories and how many faulty stories and lies you've been telling yourself all these years. People say addicts are the greatest gaslighters, and that is very true, but we gaslight ourselves better than anybody else. You know, I'm struck by this, the fact that you had... Um... Uh, parents who were both school teachers, Catholic school teachers, and they worked very hard to do their stuff. And even even they, in their household, could not protect you from being abused, even though it wasn't them that did the abuse. You still were abused by somebody else. That that just makes it that we. I th I think it's 
fair to say that at one point in time, we have all been abused and it has affected us in ways that we don't know unless you go searching for it. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the hardest days of my life was when I sat my parents down and said, here's what happened to me. And, you know, I, I don't blame them for sending me there. Um, they didn't know what was happening. The, the woman who took care of me uh, scared the crap out of me enough times that I wouldn't ever say anything. And, you know, I don't talk about this stuff very much with my mom. She hasn't read any of my books. She doesn't listen to any of my interviews. She doesn't ask any questions about what it is I do. You know, my dad and I can have good conversations and, and uh, I can have good conversations with my brother and, and my kids, but even my wife doesn't really want to go back and relive or know anything about it. And uh, I respect them. That's fine. That's what they decide. If, you know, my mom put her head in the sand, I guess, in vetting that babysitter. And she wants to put her head in the sand now dealing with the fact that, you know, I was this pornography addict. And, and I know what she thought about pornography going up. I heard her say disparaging things about the kind of people who use it enough times that I'm sure that she still has some kind of battle within herself. And that's that's her journey to take. You know, I, I you know. You should not be judged based on your addictions. You should not be judged based on the worst mistakes you make in your life. You should not be judged if you're sick, you know, and, and, and mentally ill. Now, that doesn't mean that you can go off and kill people. You know, you can't go to a judge and say, I was a porn addict or I have ADD or I'm bipolar or what well, you know, that, that doesn't hold water. You have responsibility, but. I think that in society, what we are, are starting to recognize, but need to continue pushing is that some of these things that we used to say make people bad people are not bad people things at all. It's things that make them sick. And I probably became an alcoholic and a porn addict because that's what I could get my hands on at the time. You know, thank God it wasn't heroin or meth or what, or, or, or what have you, um, Thank God it was pornography and alcohol because those have a greater, much less chance of killing you. Um, but that's why I think I became a porn addict ultimately was because it was it was available and it made me feel good. And why go looking for more when that does the trick? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing that I found in my own life, uh, one time I had a conversation with my two siblings and we were just talking about our family growing up in the house and the house that we lived in and, and stuff, it became clear after a little while that we each had a different experience of what happened in that house, one versus the other versus the other, that it was a completely different experience that we all had. So it is really is something that we all experience. And go ahead. I, I remember some, and I'm not going to get into them, but I remember a couple very graphic things happening to my younger brother at that babysitter's house, far worse than happened to me. Um, he doesn't remember anything from there. And he seems like he's a pretty well-adjusted guy. He's got a family. He's got a good life. I, I don't know if it just didn't hit him in the trauma button or, or whatever, but I've decided I'm not telling him those stories because I just uh, I, I don't want to send him down some crazy road of, you know, self-contemplation if he doesn't need it. If he got through it just fine, if he doesn't remember whatever, if he was able to dissociate at four years old, congratulations, I couldn't. Um, I'm, I'm not going to bring him there. And that's and that's one of the big things that I preach to my clients is that, you know, what we have to do is figure out 
we have to figure out the story of how you got to who you are today. And it isn't so much that we need perfect facts and we need everybody to agree with those facts. All we need is for you to believe them, for you to see the correlation. Uh, the story I told you about that kid in fifth or sixth grade. Right. You know, he says that their father abandoned them. Did he abandon them? I don't know. You know, he said that his mom bought a pair of short, a pair of pants that were five or six sizes too big. Might they have just been two sizes too big? Sure. You know, it doesn't really matter what the deep facts are. What matters is the story that we tell ourselves because we are the stories we tell ourselves. If you look in the mirror in the morning and you see a giant load of crap and you, that's the self-talk you're giving yourself, you're going to live your life like you're a giant load of crap. If you look in the mirror and you see the smartest, most handsome person on earth and you go live your life like that, you're probably going to have a lot of people who don't like you because you're full of yourself. You need, <laughs> you need to get some kind of accurate view of who you are. And that's how, that's what I see my coaching as, whether I'm helping you with porn addiction, sex addiction, whether I'm helping a couple get through, uh, infidelity, whether I'm helping, you know, a, a woman get through, uh, betrayal trauma or, and it can be any version of, of gender or sexuality in any of those, of course. Um, all I'm really doing is helping them put pieces together. I don't even see this as self-help. I see this more as mystery solving. You know, all of the answers for getting better in your life live in your head. You just have to know how to mine them. You just have to know how to put them together and interpret them. And again, it doesn't matter if every little I is dotted and T is crossed. I can tell you that I act this way because of something that happened to me when I was younger. Just knowing that is great. Now, if I want to change the way I act now, I know why it started. And it's probably going to be easier to change the way I am now. But that's my narrative. And as long as you can have a narrative you agree with that helps you understand how you got to where you are today, to me, that is the real recovery of being okay in your own skin. It's not just about chemicals. It's not just about bad decision-making with behaviors like porn or gambling or video games. It's about fixing the entire person. And part of that is where are your compulsions? But recovery is about fixing the whole person in my book. Why is it that we tend to take on the stories that people are telling us about us and we're not looking at ourselves and we start believing what other people are telling us and not necessarily what we believe about ourselves. And it affects us so much. Why are, why does our brain do that to us? Look at social media. We're all looking for confirmation. We're all looking for confirmation of, uh, of, are we okay? Are we doing well? What does the group think? You know? And, and I also think that the human brain uh, is wired to do the least amount of work, whether that's physical or mental as possible. And if you've got 10 people telling you that you're a loser, well, you can either try to prove to them you're a winner. You can tell yourself I'm a winner, but gee, I've got 10 people telling me I'm a loser. And if I don't have the skills, if I don't have the nurturing, if I don't have the critical thinking to understand why they're wrong, it's just easier for myself and my body and my mind to agree with them and, and start living that narrative. But it's, it's important for all of us to understand that, that the stories that we tell ourselves, I've heard lots and lots and lots and lots of people tell stories about being a victim, about what's happened to them in the past. And they're not 
they're not necessarily willing to take responsibility for those stories or how they how they play out and then actively work to change it they're just saying well that's just the way i am is well, do you find that to be true there yeah i do and i don't i mean i, I don't want to slam anybody who does this because my heart goes out to everybody but we all have trauma we none of us come from the perfect family uh we all have issues and i think that there are in the younger generation now, I think that there are a lot of people who at 16 or 18 or 20 realize that they didn't come from the perfect family or the perfect world. Or once college goes bad and they stop living the script that mom and dad gave them, they realize that there are a few problems. Everybody wants to claim that they're neurodivergent now. And in some sad ways, I think that mental health issues have almost become a sort of... Uh, I don't want to say fad, but sort of a romantic notion. And, uh, and, and, and it's, it's, if that's the way that you feel like you have to get acceptance, whether it's among your peers or on the internet, you know, that that's, that's sad. I mean, I, I, I think it's horrible if that's the only way that you can get people to pay attention to you, or you can feel like you can fit in is to identify as having some kind of mental problem. Um, and, I, I, yeah, I, I just, I, it's not physical. You know, that's the thing I always tell people is it's, it's not physical, it's mental and we can't measure mental things. So we kind of have to take people at their, at their word. But unfortunately, a lot of people I think have romantic notions of, uh, mental illnesses. You know, there are people who, when they, I was diagnosed bipolar at, at 22, 23, I've been on meds almost the entire time since it's not a romantic thing. I can still sometimes feel the swings despite the meds, but I have it largely controlled. There's nothing romantic about it. It's a medical condition. Um, you know, maybe I can write some greatly depressing poetry if I'm depressed or, you know, you'll get some, you can, you, I mean, I know before I got on the pills that there are people who can tell you some really interesting stories about me that hopefully the statute of limitations has expired on all of them, but I never did it because it was romantic. I did it because I had a brain disorder. And once I was put on the proper medication, my life got a lot better. I was still an addict in a couple of ways, but I didn't have the mood swings. Uh, that's not romantic to me. And I think that uh, as we're learning more about mental health, as people are finally able to talk about it, and I think it's awesome that people are on social media talking about their issues so other people don't feel alone. I mean, that's what I'm doing here with you is talking about my issues so other people don't feel alone and hopefully I can help them. But exactly. uh, it's not, you know, it's not a romantic thing. And when people say, when I tell people, yeah, I was a porn addict, and they're, oh, that's the addiction you want to have. <laughs> No, no, not, not really, because I'm not using porn the way you use porn. Um, I use it for a completely different reason th than you do. Uh, it's not the greatest thing to have. It's like, you know, oh, man, I wish I was one of those 14-year-olds who had the gym teacher that, you know, had sex with him. And it's like, no, no, I've actually talked to some of these people. You don't wish you're that person. That's, uh, that's that cool person thing. never turns out very, very <laughs> good, uh, at least in the short term. So, you know, I, again, it just comes down to education, whether it's the sexual issues or whether it's mental health as a whole. My parents, you know, I, I remember when I was 22, 23, another one of those, you know, come to Jesus moments with my parents where I sat down and I said, you know, I just want you guys to know that, 
you know, you know, I've been seeing a therapist for a few years. I've started to see a psychiatrist and they've reached a diagnosis that it's not generalized anxiety disorder anymore. They truly believe, and I agree with them based on the symptoms that it's bipolar disorder. You know, I'm somebody who has bipolar disorder and without missing a beat, my mother said, that's not our fault. <laughs> and that's, but that's the mentality of that generation still. And if you look at who are the key holders, who are the decision makers in the world, it still is people in their 60s and above, many of whom have a lot of taboos about mental health. And really, you go 40 years and above, and you've got people with huge taboos about sexuality and pornography. Exactly. Um, the most illuminated group to me, and I, I, I get the term woke, because it kind of means woken up to what's really happening. I love talking to college kids. I love coaching people in their early 20s because they don't have the taboos towards sexuality that every other generation, including mine, have. And they're easier to talk to. They're easier to get through. And I have great optimism that once they're in power, we might see some changes. But that's going to be another 30 years. And we have to do something about that now. No, I agree with you. And I wanted to, uh, I think kids today are a lot more enlightened than they, than they used to be, but I wanted to touch this with you because I've got a couple of friends and they've got like four teenage sons and God bless she, them. yeah, boy, no kidding. She's in her early thirties or mid thirties and the boys are now 15, uh, 13, 12 and nine. And the world has changed a great deal in the last in that in those 15 years that that 15 year old is the the world and internet and pornography and how it's viewed and all that stuff has changed so much how do you advocate a parent talking to their kids about the availability of porn what it's all about what it what you know how do you feel about it? how do you how do you talk to parents who need to talk to their kids because they can't if they're not getting it at their home they're getting it at their friend's home right and that's i always tell people whenever i give presentations especially in churches or libraries it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when so when parents are always like well we have put uh we have put filters on our kids phone and it's like, whoa, do you mean you have blocked one of the 4.9 billion phones on this planet? You have almost single-handedly taken care of the problem. Thank you. Filters and this kind of stuff, these barriers, they exist to make parents feel better so they don't have to address the real parts of the problem. And the reality is... Um, if parents can first recognize, especially young parents with young kids, if you can recognize that the pornography speech is not the birds and the bees speech, it's the speech about not drinking when you're young. It's the speech about not smoking cigarettes when you're young, because these things have been facing kids for decades. And pornography is now one of those things that your kids is going to, your kids are going to face. And you can make it very age appropriate as it needs to be. You can tell a four or five-year-old, hey, you don't ever let anybody see what's under your bathing suit and you don't look under their bathing suit. And you know, you don't ever let anybody take a picture of you without your clothes on and you don't take a picture of anybody else. And then, you know, once they start school, you can say, hey, I just want you to know if you're at one of your friend's houses or on the bus and your friend's looking at their phone or their tablet, 
and you see pictures of naked people and it looks like they're kissing or it looks like they're wrestling, just come and let me know because kids aren't supposed to see those, those pictures until they're older. So just let me know because I want to make sure I can protect you. And then you can start working, you know, at nine or 10 years old. I know you're going to see this stuff because half of the people see porn at 11 or younger. I know you're going to see this stuff if you haven't already. This is not what people do. These people are like actors when you look at the Transformers movies or whatever movie is popular that day. Uh, that's what that is. And then when the kid's 12, 13, 14, you can start to bring in the sexuality aspects of it. You know, I think that if we would just tell 13 and 14 year old boys about how prevalent porn induced erectile dysfunction is among older teenage guys and guys in their early 20s, that would probably bring the statistics down because you can scare them at, and it, with the truth. When I was young, when you were young, when we were 13, 14, 15 years old, the percentage of men under 30 who had any erectile dysfunction issues was between 2 and 3%. It is now between 20 and 22%. What changed? our access to pornography. And all you have to do is ask one of those guys who's dealing with the porn-induced erectile dysfunction what happened, and you will hear massive stories about porn consumption and how it fried, you know, fried their dopamine receptors and oxytocin and serotonin and all those pleasure centers that exist mainly to get us to a state of arousal so we can procreate. Well, now that we can access these chemicals at any time, these kids essentially blow their brains out using pornography or percentage do, and their sex organs stop working. And I, I've tell, I tell parents flat out, you know, at 14 years old, explain to your son too much porn. And at 18, his penis will break. Because that's essentially what ED is or, or porn-induced erectile dysfunction. I don't think most 13 and 14-year-old boys want to look at pornography every day. What I think they want is a girlfriend or a boyfriend or whatever they're into. They want somebody else. But if they can't get that, they will use pornography as a surrogate until they do. And what we need to do is basically say, well, you know, this is something that you can't do in my house because I don't appreciate it. It's not healthy for you. When you're 18 years old or when you move out, you can decide what you want to do, just like you will with alcohol, just like you will with cigarettes. You will make your own decisions as an adult. But while you're here, my job is to protect you. So please don't watch and don't use this stuff in my house. And will they still see it along the way? Of course they will. Who hasn't, you know, taken a puff of a cigarette in their life, even just to experiment one time? You know, we what we have to do is make these kids understand that there can be consequences with this. And that's not the discussion that we're having now. It has nothing to do with how babies are made. It has nothing to do with how freaky people are getting on film. You and I have been talking now for nearly 45 minutes and we've mentioned pornography. You know, we've said the word pornography probably a dozen times, but we're not talking about the graphic nature of it. That's what scares people in this world, but you don't have to talk about the graphic nature and what's on that page or what's on that phone screen, but we have to start doing something because we are sending every 11 year and 12 year old kid out into the world with the greatest porn computer ever created in the smartphone and not giving them, you know, any direction on what to do with it. And I think about myself, I thought I was the smartest, 
coolest guy at 14 years old because I found a video store that would rent me pornography because this was this was when Blockbuster and the big ones were starting to take over and squeeze out the mom and pops and they would rent anything to anybody for $2. So I was able to rent a couple porn movies every day. And then right near that same shop, there was a convenience store that would sell beer to minors. And I would always buy four bottles of beer every day after school. So there I am, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, riding my bike home from school. And in my backpack, you can hear videotapes and bottles jingling around. And I thought I was awesome because I broke the code and I know how to get this stuff now. Yet with the internet, at least on the porn side of things, I couldn't see the kind of, you know, it, it's it, it's a horrible joke, but if you can spell man screws goat, you can watch a man screwing a goat. And those are not vocabulary words that are much beyond second grade. So we do need to start talking about this because this is the kind of stuff that kids can find. And I don't think scaring them is good. I don't think shaming them is good. I think having an open discussion that is age appropriate is what is best. Well, it's it's the honesty that has to come and, and without the embarrassment, without the 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 or the shaming, because it's, it, it's a fact of life. And these kids, by the way, for those of you that are a little younger and have no idea what Blockbuster is, it, you, there used to be these stores that used to rent videotapes, which is the precursor to CDs, which is the precursor to um, streaming online. And uh, so you, you, you would go rent these things. And I'm, I'm just kind of clearing that up so, so that, feel so old <laughs> there are folks it's you know, one you know, blockbuster left in this in the world i think you're right i think i think there is just one yeah. and that's going to go down as a uh as a historical museum uh, yeah it's a museum, museum at this point <laughs> but it's in it's important for parents especially with teenage kids boys that they understand that that it's very it's it's i cannot imagine see see joshua when i was growing up the biggest concern that i had when i was 12 or 13 years old was what baseball mitt was i going to get or where were we going to go play a pickup game and that kind of or where i was going to ride my bike to now now it's like they've got adult decisions that they're making it at at, at these Yes, really? no. I mean, my my dad, he, he's older than you. He tells stories of having to jump under his desk in school during air raid drills. Well, because was, yeah. apparently in the 1950s, a desk was going to save you from nuclear war. Apparently. Um, I, yes. I don't know why they don't build houses out of those desks now. But <laughs> um, but the thing is, times change. And that's what I try to tell people is that you go back to the 1800s before refrigeration. Where I live here in Maine, I lived in one of the world capitals of ice harvesting because it's cold so often during the year. This is you'd go into rivers and lakes and we've got tons of them. And, you know, people, Maine was huge for for ice harvesting. And then that damn refrigeration came along and ruined everything. Well, no, it's just how the world changes. And at one point, you know, we were doing air raid drills. And I'm sorry, but in the 2020s, we now have to deal with pornography. Maybe it won't be an issue in 50 years. Maybe it'll be a bigger issue in 50 years. We know other issues will come along. We have to live where we are now. Older generations didn't have it easier or harder. Future generations won't have it easier or harder. And if they do, it doesn't matter anyway. So stop resenting them. Live where you are now in the in the present. 
Well, in the 50s, they had uh, you hide under your desk. Now, in the 2020s, you are hiding in the closet because there is a shooter, an active right. shooter drill. Right. So, I mean, you know, the more things change, the, the more they stay the same. I mean, yeah, it's it's by the way, we're talking with uh, Joshua uh, Shea and you can get a hold of him uh, by going to P. It's right there. Right. And the P. Addiction. I've always wanted to do this. Like it's, it's almost like a Brady Bunch thing that I'm pointing at something that's not really there. And oh, wait, this is am I looking at you now? I can do this and look at you like. Like we're Peter and Jan and yeah. exactly. <laughs> and uh, so talk to him. If you've got a question about um, addiction, pornography, addiction specifically, and also the other things that go along with that, which is uh, people that are, have dysfunctional marriages and yeah. there's, there is grief and there's um, um, of infidelity and those sorts of things. Cause you work with those people as well, right? Yes, absolutely. And that's, that's, yeah. that's and, yeah. I mean, it's really, it's again, it's all interconnected. What, how did you create a very unhealthy narrative for yourself? What happened? What did you need to do to create coping skills, to create survival tools? And I created my survival skills at seven years old. And the, the survival skills of a seven-year-old are not the ones that work for a 27-year-old or a 47-year-old, but you just keep going to the to the well again with them and that's all that's all you can do so um but if the story that you're if the story that you're telling yourself about yourself isn't positive <clears throat> if it's if it isn't uplifting if you if you believe that that some of the things and some of it comes from a voice that may be like your mother in the back of your head yeah, yeah. um if you believe that those things get somebody who is not you and somebody who is not like a close family member to go talk to about it and because uh, you're, you're wasting your life. Yeah. You can live your life a whole lot better if you have a clear understanding of what, what went on with you that made you act and do the things that you do today. And I tell you, Kevin, the, the favorite session I have with people is the first one. When I let them know right at the beginning, hey, I know this stuff is very difficult to talk about, but recognize that I talk all day about this. I write all the time about this. I am the least judgmental person. I am not going to shame you. Whatever you've seen or done, I have probably seen or done or heard of worse. And after a few minutes, you begin to see that click with them. And by the end of a one-hour session, they look like they've been through the ringer, but it's because they've, they're taught, you're looking at 15, 25, 35, 45 years of holding stuff in and then just letting it go. And when they're telling you that, well, I've always had a problem with this, uh, you know, exotic kind of pornography. It's like, okay, okay, well, that's fine. And let's keep going. And, and I don't really, you know, have a vivid reaction of, oh my God, you're a pervert. What are you thinking? <laughs> Well, when, when I don't do that, you almost see them exhale and be like, oh, of course, I can talk about this. And that is just the most rewarding thing when, you know, at the end of a session, when I'm like, OK, well, let's talk about a relationship moving forward. And they're like, yeah, I want one. But my God, am I going to feel this good every time? And it's like, well, no, because you've just talked about something you never talked about before. That was your dirty little secret. And you've shared your secret with somebody. And there's nothing wrong with your secret. There doesn't make you a bad person. You know, even if you did something bad 
you know, associated with pornography. It doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. It makes you an ill person. So let's talk about how ill you are and what track you need to take to become a healthier person. That's what we really should be doing. We need to stop traumatizing each other in this society. We need to stop planting flags and being like, I'm right. I don't care what anybody else says. I don't care what science says. I don't care what smart people say. I don't care what my family says. I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. And we, we, we have to stop doing this and shaming people who don't agree with us 100% and letting people live their lives. And when they stumble, creating a world where asking for help is okay and it's actually encouraged that would that is where we need to go absolutely by the way we've been talking with joshua shea he has he's a a got a practice and he's got three books out i encourage you to get the books and they talk about porn addiction and and how it, you can you can get through it and I appreciate you. Would you would you come back? I've got another podcast I've got to run to do, but will you come back? And and I'd love to have you on KKNW eleven fifty AM. Absolutely, Kevin. I, uh, I I think that people need to hear this stuff. And I'll tell you now, after doing this for four or five years, you hear from people who I heard you on a radio show or a podcast three years ago, and it clicked. And I'm I'm better because of you. And I said, well, no, you're better because of you. But it really makes me feel good to know that being out there and throwing these seeds out like Johnny Appleseed uh, is helping people. So, you know, thank you for letting me come on your show. I will come back anytime you want. Um, there are a lot of people who are still too scared to talk about this stuff. So thank you for allowing me to use your platform. The work that you're doing is affecting people who you will never meet Absolutely. in a positive way. Yeah. And that is all that we can ask for in life. Amen. If, if, if we can do that and do it well and, to help people and you may never meet them, but at that point it doesn't matter. Yeah, You're still exactly. doing the job. You're still doing your work. Joshua, thank you so much for being here. Go to P addict which is right there where his finger is and, and get all the information you need about him. My price and, is right. Model move. <laughs> exactly. If you'll wait right there, I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great, positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to each other because each other's all we've got. We'll see you next time.